Post-production for this episode of Fruit Bowl is sponsored by Spaces, the new chat-based app for queer people to connect over all the things they're passionate about. Join a space and chat about your favorite topics, or create a space of your own and invite your friends, or share it with the larger community. All in a safe, LGBT-friendly environment powered by Hornet. Look for Spaces in the App Store now. I don't often reference current events when I compose these introductions. I try to imagine what it will be like years from now, when someone listens for the first time, but the world we know has long since moved on. But when I listen to Deborah's first-person history, it's impossible not to think of our current political and cultural reality. All of the anger and violence and the helplessness we feel sometimes about the direction that the U.S. is headed and not compare it to the cultural and political earthquakes that were happening during the late 60s and early 70s when Deborah was coming of age. In this episode, recorded months ago before we had any idea that Roe v. Wade would be overturned, Deborah recalls the impact of the pill, the sexual revolution, and advocating for abortion rights in the years before the words Roe v. Wade had any meaning. Women's liberation, marriage rights, Deborah fought for all these things when they seemed like they would never come. Now all the victories generations have fought so hard for are in jeopardy. The Supreme Court has struck down Roe v. Wade, and Clarence Thomas is making a wish list to dismantle access to contraception, the right to same-sex intimacy, and gay marriage. But instead of feeling hopeless, I hope you can listen to Deborah's interview and feel the same inspiration I've felt in preparing her story for you. It's time for all of us to be more like Deborah and fight for the things we believe in that might feel impossible. It may surprise you that at age 71, Deborah is living as a nomad, driving across the country, visiting friends and driving a van that she has tricked out for long journeys and overnight stays. But for those of us who know her, it's not surprising at all. Deborah has been a friend and supporter of my work since we met at Outfest in LA 20 years ago, when we were both volunteers. And this interview was years in the making, as we struggled to connect in person after living in different cities. So this episode is dedicated to everyone who fights the long fight, for people who are friends over decades, and all of us who never give up. I am excited to announce the first ever live Fruit Bowl event will be happening later this summer, right here in Seattle. Passion Fruit will celebrate the femme-identified, non-binary, and genderqueer interviewees that I have featured over the last four seasons, and will feature a brand new world premiere of a short film featuring them. We will also have live performances by local talent, free drinks, and snacks. We are in the process of firming up the date and location and lineup, so stay tuned for more details as we get closer to the event later this summer of 2022. I will be launching a new Fruit Bowl Femme Space soon on the Spaces app that will be dedicated to non-cis male members and conversations. This is in addition to the main Fruit Bowl Space as well as the After Dark Space that is for more explicit conversations 
and Fruit Bowl's Kinky Queers space for kink discussions. So check out Spaces and join in on the conversation. I am still accepting short submissions from Fruit Bowl listeners for a future listener submission episode. You can send them to me via Spaces or email, or you can record yourself using your phone's voice memo app and email the file to dave at fruitpolpodcast.com. Special thanks to my latest patron, Jeremy. Currently, we are at 46 patrons who provide $286 per month to help pay for website maintenance, music licenses, and promotional efforts. Learn more at patreon.com slash fruitbowlpodcast. Thanks to Bailey Becker, who edited this episode, and Ryan Whedon, who did the final mix. Okay, that's enough from me. Now, here's Deborah. For me, my whole thing was, I was so ecstatic to be gay because the norms of society didn't apply to me. I was like, yeah, yeah, outlaw. This is Fruit Bowl, an oral history of queer sex. My name is Deborah. I'm 71. I graduated high school in 1969. This episode was recorded in February of 2022 in Los Angeles. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area in Palo Alto, very privileged kind of middle-class existence, and more than an existence, it was a great place to grow up. It was very liberal. It's Palo Alto. So you had Stanford there, and you had all that, and it was sort of the birthplace of a lot of music. So there was that, there was a very huge anti-war peace movement there. There was this thing called the Free University, which as growing up in high school, it was just like all these amazing courses that were out, you know, it was just a blossoming of that. Lots of music, I went and saw so much music at Stanford at the amphitheater and I mean, it, it was a time, it was really a time. I had a great childhood, a great teenage years. It was exciting. It was it was really exciting in that way. Mm-hmm. It was I started to become very political then, you know, writing my first letters to the editor and you know why can't abortion be legal? If they can put a man on the moon, why can't abortion be legal for you know? It's like early feminist. This was about 67, 68. So it was lots of anti-war stuff. And then the feminism kind of grew out of those organizations. You know, women were like, wait a minute, we have a say in this kind of. Traditional family structure, mother, father, younger sister. We were Jewish, so that added a little different element into the majority population wasn't. And yes, they were Kennedy liberals. They were, you know, they were open to change. They were young. You know, your parents are young at some point. And she, you know, had come out of the stultifying 50s. That was not great for women. And she was a victim of her own misgivings about and self-esteem and she did not follow her dream so she you know felt 
And she should have been doing what she was supposed to do, but she fed into the security issue, all this kind of blah, blah, blah things that many, many people, I think many people still do to this day. You know, they take that easy road because they feel like, well, the society likes it, mom, dad like it, I'll get married. I mean, now probably there's tons of gay people that are feeling that same kind of pressure. She was a triple threat. She could sing, she could dance, she was fantastic. You would love her. I can't say that I know what my father's attitude was. My father was not a big talker, not, I don't think he voiced his opinions all that much. I can't remember. My mother was a actor and she performed in local theater all over the Bay Area. There were always gay people in it, and they didn't have any problems with that. I don't believe there was anybody in my extended family that was queer, although I have now, looking at one particular picture, thought my grandmother might be, and knowing her. But no, I didn't have any. Oh, wait a minute. Let's go back. My grandmother had a boyfriend, Uncle Joe. Uncle Joe lived in San Francisco. He drove a Volkswagen bug. He was very natty. He always wore bow ties. He was a cutter for a couture fashion house. You know, a, not a tailor, but a cutter, which is a very highly skilled job. And every Sunday, he would drive to Palo Alto and go out with my... And I think they met each other in San Francisco. She had lived there and loved opera. Ah. <laughs> so that's how I have parsed that. <laughs> Her boyfriend loved opera. And she did too. And, and he was also a cutter. For, and he was for, a, uh, a fashion, fashion house and he was very well dressed. And he, so that's why I think they were beards for each other. <laughs> did you ever get to interact with him? Oh yeah. I mean, he came over every Sunday, you know, we, we knew him, but you know, I was maybe eight, nine, 10. You don't, I didn't have any inkling of those kinds of things, but when, you know, sort of you look back now yeah. and you're like, Neon. I love that though, that she had a companion. Yeah. Yeah, to do what she liked to do with. Yeah. That's awesome. (laughs) Did your family know of any queer people just in the community? Now, I think back on it, I had this fifth grade teacher. She wasn't my teacher, but we switched classes for one or two subjects. And she was this little tight butch dyke. And she was really tough on me, and I remember being very disappointed about that. Mm. Now, I don't think I knew at the time that she was, I mean, she looked different than the other female teachers, that's for sure, but I don't think I knew. You have to imagine that in the early to mid-60s, I did not have a picture of a gay person. There may have been sissy characters on TV or butch women on TV that were made fun of, and I may have absorbed that, but nobody talked to me and said, oh, that's because of that person is gay. I do remember that one time we were visiting LA and we were staying on the Sunset Strip, and for some reason I had a Life magazine, and in the Life magazine was this spread about New York and the homosexual nightlife of New York. And I read the whole thing, but I didn't understand the word homosexual. Like I got the, I was like, oh my God, this is fascinating, you know, for my 12 year old brain. And 
I, when I showed it to my mother in front of my father, she goes, can't talk about that now or something like that. So that may have, you know, that was there. I mean, I really remember that spread and I bet you could find that, that Life magazine. So that might've been so early 60s, 63 to 65 or something like that. So at that time in the early 60s, there were, you know, no positive images that I could say, oh, look, there's a woman who likes women. Everybody knew that that was going on. It's not like gay people weren't around from ever. They were, people were always there. It's just, was the society more accepting of it at the time or less accepting of it at the time? You know, I mean, look at pre-Nazi Germany, you know, the Institute and, the, and all the bars and all the scenes. I mean, they're magnificent gay scenes and that was going on. And I think it would have thrived without that fascism repression at that point. <laughs> I feel like I was a really slow developer. So it was late. I'm not like any of these people. Like I knew that I was attracted to boys when I was seven. I was like, I was playing with cardboard and building things when I was, you know, 12 and 14. Although I did have a crush on somebody. So I guess I knew that boys and girls, that people had crushes on one another. Now I had a crush on a girl. I must have been 13. She was a year, I think a year older. She played the flute. I almost played the flute. It's a good thing that my mother has, was like, we're not buying you a flute. <laughs> I don't feel like this is real. <laughs> and it, it ended, but you know, when it was, I was crushed out. But it's interesting because I do remember all of that, but I didn't associate that with my being gay in any particular way. I don't recall when I first learned about sex. I guess I must have, maybe it was in that fifth grade year, fifth or sixth. I think that seems about the time, right? I feel there must have been some sex education. They split up the girls and boys, and what I remember most, I, th I guess, was probably menstruation, because that seemed like, first of all, horrible word, and <laughs> like frightening. <laughs> There's gonna be what? Coming out of me where? <laughs> So like I said, I was not the most you know, knowledgeable person or didn't have the impulses. A lot of people in 14, 15, 16 are very sexually active. I did have a couple of experiences with boys in cars, but um, I, I kind of wrote those things off because I, I compartmentalized a lot of that kind of stuff because I think I knew I was gay all along in some place. I volunteered for a Center for Developmentally Disabled Adults, young people. It was a peer counseling kind of thing. We'd just dance and do stuff and it was terrific. It was a great thing to do in high school. And um, some of the other people were from other schools and one had been a model and she had then tried to commit suicide. So her therapist said, you need to do something for other people. But I, her and her friend were far more advanced sexually than I was. And they used to talk about walking around the school holding hands and everybody calling them lesbians. That was a new point for me right there. And then talking about sex and having sex. And I thought, oh, I need to, I need to have sex to cross this off. Mm -hmm. And not a whole lot of yearning in that way. Just like, oh, I've reached this age. I should probably do this. 
kind of thing in a lot of it. So they were sort of the first people, and they talk about sex. I really was kind of, I mean, I must have known that it involved. I was also scared of pregnancy, so there was a lot of that. When I was 16, my first real crush on a woman was a woman that uh, ran a program that I volunteered at. Her name was Beth. And she was about seven or eight years older. And we formed a very close friendship. And it was, it was wonderful. And so homophobic. It was crazy. She had been a, a PE major and changed it because everybody said, oh, there's all these, you know, lesbians in the PE department. So she changed it to recreation. Not terribly bright, so it was you know really wasn't going to go anywhere. And uh, but we were very close, and we really had a great time together, and really enjoyed it. Enjoyed it. Were you conscious of, at the time of the infatuation? Not really. I mean, I knew I cared about her, and I enjoyed being around her. And I she was really the only person I wanted to be around, but I did not look at it as a sexual infatuation. I mean, it's inappropriate on so many levels. <laughs> I was underage. We would smoke pot together. I mean, <laughs> we had a friendship. I would stay overnight at her apartment in San Jose. No, we had a friendship. It was very close. She got pregnant, and I talked about a free university in Palo Alto, and one of the listings was this one guy uh, helped women get an abortion in Mexico. He, he was an angel. I mean, really. He set the whole thing up. So I drove her to the airport, borrowed my parents' car, didn't tell them, dropped her off, came back when I was supposed to pick her up. You might know that there were no cell phones at that time. So when the person was supposed to come back, that's when you went to go pick them up. I waited at the gate, and all the women that had been on there came off. And I was like, "Uh, my friend Beth, where's she? They go, oh, well, she had some complications, so she had to stay. And I was like frantic. So finally called and... She was better, and I went back and picked her up. And then that's when I wrote the letter to the editor, the Palo Alto Times, about why is abortion not legal for women? This is crazy. And that was like 68, I think, 67, 68. So having had that experience around the abortion made me very certain that I didn't want to have an abortion. So I made sure that I had um, birth control. I mean... If you think about it, the pill made sexuality available to women. We were not then at that point held hostage, you know, so we could control that factor. But then I didn't need it after that when I came out. <laughs> and when I did come out, I did go visit her to, to talk to her and see whether or not, you know, there was any mutual feeling or anything and, or just, I don't even really know why. I guess just to button it up, but <laughs> she was not a lesbian. Oh, okay. And yeah. she stated it explicitly yeah. then? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And who knows what happens down the years or whatever, you know. This was not an easy time. And even though Stonewall had happened, their, their homophobia was strong within so many, I mean, as it is still today. Why I was able to come out so easily and other people not, I don't know, just my personality, I guess. I just couldn't abide by hypocrisy and not being me. Mm-hmm. When I went back to talk to her about this, I was 21. Maybe somebody would say it's confronting, but for me it was just like checking in and, and wanting to know whether or not, now that I had a name for how my feelings were towards her, was there anything there there? You know, I mean, 
I had to do that because I was underage. I mean, maybe there was something there. And she was like, oh, heck no, I'm not going <laughs> to. This is just a child, you know, and that would have been inappropriate. She was in a position. I mean, now it's, you know, that would have been a me too all over the place. So when I did go back to her to check in and see, was there anything on her side? And she said there wasn't, then that was disappointing to me, but didn't end my life and, and went on. I mean, she was important. She was important in my development as a person. And that, and that's really, that's the most important part for that relationship. How do you think she helped you develop? Well, just being in the world of the person who was older, you know, a lot of times when you're a teenager, I think, and you're hanging out with people of the same age, you don't get the opportunity to see things from another viewpoint. And, you know, having an older person around gives you, older, seven years, but seven years is a lot in those years. So, she had, she had already gone to college and she now she'd moved cross country and she had this job running this program. So she was a adult. <laughs> I was not. And so being around that gave me a lot. I learned a lot. Well, yeah. It was great. I enjoyed being that. It's that mentor. There's a lot to be said about having mentors, you know, adult mentors when you're a certain age. And you just, if you just keep in the same age group, you, there's no way to kind of jump ahead because everybody is sort of like struggling. I still had friends that were my age, but not a lot. So my first heterosexual experience with sex intercourse was with a very wonderful human being. I loved him very much. I went to two years of community college, Los Altos Hills, uh, Foothills. That was a very political time, and I, at that point, had a boyfriend who was an amazing man, feminist man, really delightful, like anybody would want to be with him. He was just a great guy. So then we started going out, and my parents loved him, my sister loved him, he was a great guy. He had been in the military, and he had a girlfriend in Japan. He was stationed in Japan, and I feel like he knew what he was doing. He wasn't, you know, it was, it was gentle and wonderful and all that kind of things. But we did have a little bit of an obstacle. So he had a roommate who had just recently gotten back from Vietnam, the war, that was in the, from 63 to 74 or something like that. He had gone, and he came back very, very damaged. And... <laughs> they just basically rented this little back house in the area in this really cute neighborhood of Palo Alto. And it was just like kind of one big room that <laughs> sort of like there was a bed here, there was a little wall, and then there was a bed right there. <laughs> and there's these little slats hanging down. So basically I learned to have sex without making noise, which is very interesting. It's not, I don't suggest it because it's not, it's not as freeing as you really want to be when you have sex. That's sort of an interesting kind of imprint on my early sexual experience. <laughs> well, you know, it's like, boy, you're so quiet. It's like, I'm sorry, that's the way I learned it. So, you know, oh, I'll try to make some a little bit more now. I so say, you know, I'm alive <laughs> and I'm really enjoying this. <laughs> How long did that relationship go on? Well, it, I mean, we traveled together. We had a life together that was really fantastic. It went on for 
two years before I transferred to go to school you know, at Santa Cruz. And he had already transferred. He had gone up to San Francisco State, so he was living in San Francisco while I was still in Palo Alto. But then I just sort of thought, well, you know, and he wanted to get married, and I was like, oh, <laughs> you have got to be kidding. First of all, life is just beginning. <laughs> I said, I said, I don't know a whole lot about myself, but what I do know is I'm going to experience a lot of things. And marriage is not going to happen right now. I mean, I knew in my heart it was not going to happen. So that, you know, was disappointing because like, he was older and he'd already been in the military. And so for him, you know, he was feeling that's what you do. When you're 27, 28, you get married. So I was trying to cut it off. I said, you know, I don't want to... I don't want to be unfaithful or anything, but I'm going away to college. <laughs> <laughs> to Santa Cruz. I'm going to Santa Cruz. We didn't really know how Santa Cruz Santa Cruz was at that point, but I knew that it was a little weird because they took me. <laughs> <laughs> I treasure every, it taught me so, once again. But you know, that's my own, my philosophy too is about relationships. I mean, I've had many each person is added to the totality of who I am. I would never have known about this or this or this without, you know, wasn't my goal, but now, you know, wasn't my interest, but because you were interested in it, I learned a little bit about that. And that, so, you know, I love that. I loved having that relationship. I'm sorry to break his heart. He cried every time I tried to break up with him. I was like, don't cry. No. <laughs> that tells you a lot. So I left Palo Alto and I moved to Santa Cruz, which was about 45 minutes away, to go to college. And at Santa Cruz, we didn't live in, in dorms. We had this student housing that they were building. Our college wasn't built at that point, so we were in the married students' housing. I had three roommates, so there would be a girls' apartment and a boys' apartment, a girls' apartment. Well, we were known as the best dope-smoking apartment. <laughs> Santa Cruz, people in the 60s, late 60s, early 70s. But I, my, so my friend, uh, my roommate, she's like, she was from, I think, I think she was from New Mexico. She drove a Jeep, she had this wild red hair, and she had a waterbed. And I would sleep with her and I would think, I'd like to roll over and kiss her. And I was like, huh. And I was very analytical. It's like, huh, that's interesting, Deborah. <laughs> I just clocked that. And then, couple of months after being there, so probably, I'm going to say November, December, there was a conference, weekend conference, on lesbian LGBT. Did we do the T? I don't know if the T was there at that time, but LBG, I'd say. And so I didn't know what the hell to do, so I sort of like plopped myself in the bisexuals because, you know, there is this visual that I have. Who, of this person who later became a friend. And she came in, she was wearing a leather jacket, and she came in with a motorcycle helmet, and she took the helmet off like this and did this with this long hair. <laughs> it just went, oh, fuck. <laughs> so, you know, wasn't porn, but it was pretty close. <laughs> yeah, well, and then I became friends with her, too, later on. We worked on projects and stuff, too. But yes, and there was like a women's group and we had a women's dance. And so things were starting to happen and heat up. But I still hadn't had sex. <laughs> so there was this one person I was flirting with 
And I somehow went over to her dorm room. Something was getting late. Maybe got high. Who knows what I stayed over and we had sex. That was the only time I had sex with her. And years later, she became a therapist. And when I saw her later on and I said, I need to tell you something. She said, you're the first woman I had sex with. She goes, I thought so. I was like, really? This is what you're telling me? <laughs> you thought so? But there's that bad, you know? <laughs> Did you think it went bad? I didn't think it went bad. I mean, I was happy. I was like, yay. <laughs> Demystified that. Demystified the first time you're having sex. Is, that's important. It, it just got to happen. And so, you know, it was, it was good. She was helpful, you know? You make out, you get sex, you get sexy feelings, you have sex. I don't know what we did. I don't know, fingers, mouths, who knows? And then I ended up with her ex-girlfriend, because, you know, lesbians. <laughs> For me, my whole thing was, I was so ecstatic to be gay because the norms of society didn't apply to me. I was like, yeah, yeah, outlaw. I don't have to get married because I can't, but I don't really want to. I, you know, I was like, let's rewrite the paradigm of relationships. I was like, this is an opportunity. This is where we get to say, what makes relationships good? And when they're not good, should you stay in one? And does that, so does that mean till death do we part? I think not. I think we're going to like rethink all of this. You know, and it's not a failure if a relationship breaks up. Like, I was a big proponent of all those kinds of things. And actually, quite frankly, it was a little part of the whole group of people who were dismayed about gay marriage being the wedge argument. It kind of got pushed. And you'll hear a lot of people talk about that, you know, that a lot of people didn't think this is not the wisest way for us to go. But it got presented. And once it got presented, you were like, well, okay, we'll go with it. You know, and my whole way of looking at that is just don't tell me I can't do something. Let me make the decision whether or not I want to do it, but don't tell me I can't get married. So that's how I justified being, you know, a marriage proponent. I still think it's a dysfunctional concept and more than a concept, <laughs> whatever. There was freedom in who you could be with, how long you could be with them. Yes, you could get chlamydia. There are things that you could have, you could get <laughs> from, you know, female on female sex, but the stakes were not as high for us. We were quite lucky in that way. Mm -hmm. And don't you know, I am appreciative of all that. Where do you think you got that ability to kind of see past convention and really kind of just not really follow the rules? I mean, I, I feel like it's, you know, that I was just a flower in this really rich soil of the time and picked up on all of the, and was amenable to these kinds of things and picked up on them and read, you know, and listened and watched and, and had good people around me to guide me into, into a lot of these things. And, and, you know, just a quirk of personalities and well, I was just open. I was always open to things. Because it was Santa Cruz, because it was the early 70s, we were just sort of having sex with one another. <laughs> there was a lot of sex. Even I even had sex with again, and then we used to call the greatest asset to the, to the lesbian movement because people have sex with and then they'd come out all the way. <laughs> it was just a guy in our 
group, you know. <laughs> Poor <laughs> he, he probably had such a complex because he like we'd tell him that, you know. <laughs> he was a very sweet guy too, but you know, there was just a lot going on. You know, there was a whole thing later in the late seventies and the early eighties about seventies lesbians being anti-sex. I was like, I'm sorry. Where, you know, you really weren't in Santa Cruz in the early 70s because we, we slept with, a, yeah. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of... There was a lot of this and this and this and this person and then that person. You know, people would get together for a while and go with them, go with each other and then, you know. It was college. That's what you're supposed to do. In the past, I was a member of the uh, SM community, sadomasochism, mm -hmm. Seattle, San Francisco, all, all over. I mostly topped, um, although I was a very big believer in experiencing whatever I was doing to somebody else, just so that I would know. Uh, I love to pierce and I love to play pierce people. I like the idea of, we use that word play, and I was very playful. So much so that people constantly were like, you know, feeling like scolding me because I wasn't serious enough in my SM or my things at a party. But I thought, well, you know, we're playing. I mean, we're a bunch of adults. We're doing these things. It's kind of funny if you think back. <laughs> like, it really is. We're dressing up. We have these roles. We have these artificial families that we put together. I, you know, I might as well enjoy myself. I think it was more about a community. Like, I really enjoyed the play parties. You know, less about in the personal one-on-one -on -one situation. Sometimes that would happen, but more as a pretty social kind of event in that way. And I remember there was a group that lived outside of San Francisco and it had a compound and a pool. And, you know, we would just find all kinds of fun things to do on a Sunday afternoon. And then also there was some performance aspect to it. So as a performer, I kind of added, you know, that element to it in clubs, the performance in a lot of different clubs. Once a week we would do something. Sometimes, you know, you didn't do it every week, but you know, oftentimes they say, Mommy, we have an idea. You know, we'd like you to do this. It's like, okay, but I'm going to do it my way. <laughs> But over the years, I've sort of pulled back. I still sort of have a mind fondness for all of the game plays and stuff. And, you know, certainly can rally if necessary, but it's not really part of my day-to-day -day in this part of my life. I had moved to Seattle right at the time when they were trying to form this group. What's the big event in Chicago mm -hmm. that all the men go to, which I, I never got to, IML. I, IML. Yeah, so then there was a women's version of IML. And then up in Seattle, we had Power Surge. So I ended up being one of a couple of people who started as the chairs to kind of get this thing together. And we had several you know, weekend events over the couple of years, the National Leather Association and things like that. So there would be a, a lot of stuff where there would be weekend full of parties or you'd plan the parties or you'd perform in the parties. So it was like that kind of thing. And that went on a pretty regular basis. It was a lot of fun. I had, I had a good time. But, you know, in sort of my personal relationships, 
Not as much, not so much. I was in New York and I started dating this person. That was, I'd say, 87 or 88. And at that time we were reading Anne Rice. And Anne Rice has several other books that she's written under pseudonyms. And some of them are these SM inspired books. And they're really fun. So we were reading these and we went down to New Orleans and I was reading it on the, on the plane and this person said, well, does this interest you? And I said, well, yeah, it kind of interests me. And then so we started playing right then, like in a way that we didn't even know what the hell we were doing. But it sort of like started topping her then. And then we, I remember when we were in our little bungalow hotel, we got a rose, a beer bottle, <laughs> and something else. Oh, a belt. And we started playing with them, during using sex. them during sex, yeah, as a means of, of stimulation, of control, of playing. Well, I'm sure that the belt was used as a you know, slapping, slapping on the butt or on the back kind of thing. The rose, a teasing thing with the thorns, kind of like the playing with the sensuality of the the rose petals and then the, you know, using the thorn maybe as scratching kind of thing. I'm sure the beer bottle was a dildo of some sort. And, and like that, and we just, we had a great time. And then from that became a search for finding other people, learning more, and ultimately connected with the Seattle group, the National Leather Association. They had a conference, flew there, stayed with a bunch of people, met a bunch of people, learned. She and I at that time met a lot of people and we were very, very green. We were so green. We didn't know, you know, you, we bought like three pieces of leather because you had to have some leather. And <laughs> maybe we bought something at the conference, a whip or something. It felt safe because we were both on the same level yeah. of like ignorance and the ability to explore. And then we entered this world that we were given more opportunities. You know, people were like, ooh, fresh meat. <laughs> ooh, they're cute, they're young, bring them in. And so we, we met a lot of people, we went to a lot of workshops, so education was really important. That's where that education happens, and especially if you're gonna enter the world of kink, you have to know what you're doing. It's just, it's mandatory. Don't play with somebody who hasn't learned something, been mentored from someone, gone to a workshop. It's just dangerous. Power Surge was this women's SM weekend. We were at the meet and greet at the, or the beat and greet as we like to call it, at, at the Wild Rose and there was stuff going on and, and I was in and I was, you know, floating around and, and somebody came up to me and said, there's this young person outside who wants to go to the power search. We think you should go talk to her, Deborah, because I feel like I was one of the very same, <laughs> most sane people. So I go out and this 16-year-old presents herself and we go over, we sit down and I go, why are you here? She goes, I've done SM with my girlfriend. I interviewed her. 
And she says, and I really want to come. And I said, well, you know, you're too young. We can't, nobody can do anything with you. You're too young. What are you doing? I said, okay, here's what you can do. Because we had the, the workshops at the Seattle College down the road. And a lot of times we sat outside. And I said, okay, you can serve me. You can sit at my feet. And when I want a cup of water, you go and get the cup of water. I will not touch you. No one else will touch you. I said, but you can sit there and you can observe what's going on but no one will touch you. And that's what happened. And slowly, as, and she, as she got older, you know, she was incorporated more into the thing. So she got what she wanted, and no one went to prison. <laughs> and then the whole way that the mommy story came about, or the name, I saw the daddy boy stuff, and I was like, saw this daddy boy stuff. Where are the female aspect of that relationship? Where's the mommy girl? So. I was like, that's what I do, mommy girl, because I like younger, 10, 15 years younger, because I was older at that time. So still, they were still legit. And then one time at that pool party kind of thing, I would just go like, hey, I wonder what would happen. And then I would say something. And then this other friend said, oh, that's mean, mommy. So then the mean mommy came together. But I really wasn't mean, mommy. I just made people think that I was. You would say, well, we're going to do this. And then I'd go, oh, what if we added this to it? Well, that's, that's where I feel like your creativity, you know, like somebody sets the scene. It's like when I do, like with writing, I always worked well with another person because they would start it. And then having that, I could then continue on you know, with it. I moved to New York after I finished law school, took the bar exam, and knew that I did not want to go to be a lawyer. My girlfriend at the time was an actress and had said to me that she either wanted to move to New York or Chicago. So we uh, packed up our stuff to move to New York. And then I became an itinerant theater worker after that. Mostly ended up working as a stagehand and building and stuff like that. Yeah, it's great in, the in theater in the eighties, and and participated in forming a seminal women's theater group in New York called the Wow Women's One World, where it was a sort of an anarchist group of women who did our own thing and on the Lower East Side of New York in the eighties. It's fantastic. There are books written about this group, and several famous people have come emerged. Lisa Crone was a member, and she wrote. Fun Home, which was on Broadway musical, The Five Lesbian Brothers, uh, Split Bridges is a well-known alternative theater group for years, two women who explore sort of butch femme and political dynamics. Yeah, that's how I ended up in New York, and it was fantastic. It's like the, my most favorite time. Oh, and this is another proud moment that I have. This is the only time this happened, and does not really happen once. I was on the corner of First and, and St. Mark's at the pizza place, which is Stromboli's, but everything's called Stromboli's. But on that particular counter, and I was like leaning out, looking on the street, and this woman walks up, and we look at each other, and she comes in, she gets a pizza, and she stands next to me. And then she goes, you want to come over to my place? And I go, yes. I go over to her place and down there and had sex with her. I do not know what her name was. This never happened ever again. Although I did have sex with that skateboarder. <laughs> that 
like there's, there are, yeah, you know, I mean, you know, once again, I'm like, I was like, yes, anding before it was a thing, you know. <laughs> oh. New York was definitely my place. But, uh, you know, New York has always been in my life. I ended up in a show that went to Broadway and brought me back to New York, and then I did fashion. I've always gone to New York all through the years at one point or another. It's just improv. Kink is just improv to me. It's just this opportunity to have this really fun scene. One of the scenes that I liked the most was with these two people, and they had this bottom, and she loved to dress in vintage clothing. And we planned a kidnapping scene after this night at one of the bars of Women's Night. I don't know if it was a Seattle Women's con Contest or whatever it was. You know, we're going about the evening, and then we kind of, one of us was like, somehow got her outside, and then we put something around her eyes, and we put her in the back seat, and I'm sitting in the back seat, and, and probably sitting in the back seat, and somebody's driving. And, and so then I just start saying things like, remember when the last time we did this? And then she goes, oh, yeah. And I said, you know, when that cop pulled you over. So we got her to the party, because there was a play party afterwards. So we got her to the play party. So I said, like, what are we doing? I go, oh, okay, it, it's an audition for a movie. We're casting for an all-female version of Taming of the Shrew. It's a butch, and then, you know, it's like, and I'm like, oh, this would make a really great, actually, this would make a really great movie if we did a butch version of Taming of the Shrew. So we made her do an audition, you know, bark like a dog, or do something like that, you know, sort of humiliating kind of thing. And then she had to go to her medical exam. And, <laughs> Those are the kinds of things that I like to do. And we really had fun. It's really fun to work with other tops. So she was scared, you know, like it was really that kidnapping. We really made it. She really gets into it. She, it's just great. She really went along with the whole thing. Yeah. You know, so. Was there any traditional? There was some, well, does like to do some paddling. She's a, she's a mistress. She's a traditional Victorian, you know, she likes to do that kind of thing. So. There was some, there was some painful buttocks, mm -hmm. I think. They nice. have, may have been reddened, as they say. <laughs> At University of California at Santa Cruz, there was um, a class, a women's studies class, and I had been out by that time, and, and you know, an experienced woman of 22. And there was this gorgeous woman, she had long fingers, she played in, she had long hair and everything. She was, you know, had a relationship with a male, and she very, very strongly came on to me. And I was like, well, I guess, uh -huh. and she said, my boyfriend's going to be away from the weekend. Now, this is a moral failing on my part. Like, like, what about that whole sentence? Should not be the largest red flag that any human being would see. But, you know, once again, age, eh, hormones, long, beautiful fingers. Um, it's going to be gone for the weekend. You can, you know, I want you to come over. And I was like, okay, okay. <laughs> Um, I go over and we begin the begin and her boyfriend comes back because I feel like he sensed something and I don't know if she heard the car door in the driveway 
And I got up and I grabbed my clothes and I hid under a stairwell. And at that moment, kids, I felt shame. And I said, Deborah, you will never feel this shame ever again. You will never put yourself in this position to feel shame again. And I didn't. I was like, hard lesson to learn. Value yourself. Don't put yourself in that situation. And if you are, be proud of it. Don't run underneath the thing. Sit there and go, what the fuck? No, you invited me over. This should have been okay. I'm not the one cheating. You're the one cheating. But I went into that shame spiral, and that was like, oh, no, not going to happen again. Mm -hmm. And right there, you understand why we call it a pride parade, mm -hmm. because of that. That is the essence of why it's called pride. Because yeah. fuck you. We're not shameful about this. This is who we are. I love pride. I love to see the entire picture of who we are. You know, it's just, it's so amazing. We, we, we look and manifest and enjoy so many different things. And I just, I revel in it all. You know, it's like, do I want that person to be my best friend? I do not. But I'm glad that they are alive and that they are living that, that way. They get to be themselves. And so I, I really like pride. It's kind of interesting how the, the new speak and the new way of thinking has sort of eliminated. It's, it's less critical in a way. Yeah. It's sort of like you have to kind of abide by these kinds of things. And really, we want you to be able to, sure, be as proud as you are for all those kinds of things. But know that, you know, I hope you fall in the mud. Do you know what I mean? It's like it's, it's healthy. Growth doesn't happen if everything is just, everything is great. Everything isn't great. You know, how many people are hiding battering in relationships? And I worry about that sometimes in kink. I see certain kinds of things. Like, I'm like, should all these people really be doing this? You know, I mean, I, I, have, I have real concerns in a lot of those communities. I gave myself my own personal mission statement, which was to come out to every person I met. And pretty much I have done that. There's really been very few times in which I was just like, mm, keep your mouth shut because this is dangerous. I would just work it into the conversation after we had it. It was like, she, my girlfriend, she, or my partner, or something like that, hoping that they would walk away from that conversation and think, you know, today I met a gay person they were smart, they were funny, polite. I mean, have I not wanted to hit people over the heads? Yes, of course. Am I not human? Oh, I am a lucky fucker. I really am. I feel it's a combination. I am a good person. I'm a compassionate person. And, well, no, I like people. And so people respond to it. I mean, I have all, tons, and this is it's a weird thing to say about yourself, but people constantly come up and they go, I don't know, I'm just really attracted to your energy and your light. And you're the, you know, I see this thing and it's like, you know, I, like, I kind of heard that before. I'm not trying to put that out or be that kind of person. I just be me and, you know, that energy begets other good energy. And, and I'm open to to new ideas and to different things. And I'm curious. I'm curious about other cultures. I'm curious about how things work. 
just like anybody else, I mean, I would have a, I'd fall for somebody, and then if that didn't work out, I mean, I had disappointments. I, you know, I have 17 journals of crying about relationships going bad. You know, I mean, over the years, I've learned to look at things a little bit wider and and different. Spent many years in going to CODA meetings to not be a codependent person and to come into my own. It's, you know, life is just a growth process. And, you know, yeah, I'm as screwed up as anybody else and about certain things and fucked up. But, you know, you go back and you look at it and say, oh, you're right about that. No, I'm not going to take that. And so you change that and you keep that. And it's just the, it's a process of growing and it doesn't, doesn't stop. You know, that, that biological age, you know, like I've said before, I don't feel my biological age. I am aware of it. <laughs> your body changes. Your face changes. You look in the mirror and you're like, oh my God, where my mother? That's my mother. Oh, wait, it's me. You know, the body breaks down and you have a lot of experiences, but still I feel youthful in my outlook on the world. I know how to listen to a person's body. I think I give good oral sex. I think I can be sensuous and sensual. I can use a strap on, but that's, you know, quite frankly, it's been so long. And that hasn't always been a giant part of my sexuality. You know, that's sort of like a later kind of thing. Earlier on, we didn't really use AIDS, as it were. I'm very good at fisting. Small little hands, I take my time. I'm a, I'm a pretty good top, yeah. yeah. I'm not a mean top, really. I mean, uh, I can be, I can like take control. I am not closed off to the possibility of intimacy, but I am not holding on to that. You know, happening. Frankly, with the older you get, the more, I mean, that, that whole thing, getting more settled, you know, you, first of all, you know what you don't want, mm-hmm. you know, so that's, gets narrower and narrower, and I always say, so imagine a population, and so then half of it's female, half it's male, so you cut out, and then you go to the homosexual part of it, and then that sliver of 50% is now down to nine, if you're lucky, 10%, and then you get to the age and then you get to stylistically this, whatever this is. I'm not butch, I'm not femme. So now we're talking about a very little narrow sliver of possibility of finding that one. For me, it's the pheromones. It really is about the pheromones. It's like the, the things that go back and forth that you know that I'm gonna have sex with that person. It's a smell, it's an instinct, it's, it's... Now you can get beyond that you know, like you're just horny and there he is, wink, you know, <laughs> I'll hang on to that, sure. But, you know, you may not want it to go further than that because all the other things aren't there. Right, right. So, yeah. you know, finding all those other kinds of things, her having a dog, not a deal breaker because, you know, you got to give a little, Deborah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So, you know, and now, like, you know, nobody looks perfect. I don't look perfect. Because in your mind, you're still 22, you know. And you're still looking at those 22-year-olds. And you're like, I don't look like that. Why should I think that they would want to go with me? That's ridiculous. That's obscene, really, if you think about it. Unless you're, like, some really rich midlife crisis white guy who then can buy a model. 
you know just be yourself just enjoy being yourself and who you are and that right person or right time or experience will come along and then to appreciate that you know I always I always used to say I really only have three pieces of advice and then I always forget what the first one is but the second one is to always wear clean underwear because you just never know and the third one is to have lots of sex so that you can then remember it when you're older and you don't have as much sex <laughs> Fruitball interviews are edited for length and narrative clarity and are approved by each interviewee before being released. Visit fruitbowlpodcast.com where you can learn more about this episode, browse the episode archive, and watch original videos. Fruitball collects histories from all different backgrounds and experiences. Cisgender women, trans and genderqueer individuals, black people, indigenous people, and people of color. It's only by collecting diverse stories that we can begin to see what unites us. Interested in sharing your story? Find out more about the interview process, including a full list of questions, a description of the collaborative interview process, and news about future production. Visit fruitbowlpodcast.com for links and contact information. Fruitbowl is produced independently without any corporate media infrastructure or full-time staff. Help support our efforts to collect, archive, and share personal stories about queer coming of age by making a small monthly donation through Fruitbowl's Patreon membership. Patrons get early access to episodes, behind-the-scenes updates, and exclusive video outtakes from each episode that are not available to the general public. Or promote your business by sponsoring an episode of Fruit Bowl or dedicate an episode to a loved one. Episode sponsorships and dedications are 100% tax-deductible through Fruit Bowl's fiscal partnership with Seattle's Northwest Film Forum. Fruit Bowl receives no direct funding from Northwest Film Forum, only the use of their nonprofit status to receive tax-deductible donations. Learn more at fruitbowlpodcast.com slash donate or write dave at fruitbowlpodcast.com for more information. Social media platforms often censor mentions or depictions of queer sexuality. Accounts are often suspended or banned outright without notice or due process. As a result, promoting Fruit Bowl is an uphill battle so we rely on you to help spread the word. Tell your friends about Fruit Bowl, rate us on your podcast platform, or write a review on Apple Podcast. And, of course, you can also follow us, for now, on Twitter at Fruit Bowl Pod, and Instagram and TikTok at Fruit Bowl Podcast. Fruit Bowl is created, produced, and edited by Dave Quantic. I'm Rebecca M. Davis. This has been a production of Cubed Media, all rights reserved. Thanks for listening.